0: And welcome to this week's episode of Tired and Thriving, a podcast recognizing just how tired and exhausted we all are while discussing ways to still thrive. Whether it's something big like going to see a Shakespeare in the park or something small like when your finger randomly cracks the right way and it sends a quick serotonin boost to the brain, we're here to help each other thrive. I'm your host, Samantha Gray, and this week's guest is Liza Singer. Liza is a supervising director, director, storyboard artist, and writer. You've heard it here, folks. They've done it all. They are currently working on a graphic novel that hopefully they'll tell us more about. Uh, is there anything else you're maybe working on that I didn't mention that you'd like to bring up?
1: That was pretty comprehensive, <laughs> so you're, you're good. <laughs> cool. Yes, I did it. <laughs> well, uh, I want to start off with...
0: Uh, what started your path into art and animation?
1: Oh, man. So I mean, art has always been kind of part of my life since I was like very little. Like, so I used to have trouble concentrating, and my mom solved it by putting pieces of paper in front of me, wherever we would go. And I would just draw and it was like, so wherever, whatever restaurant, I would just always have like pieces of paper to draw on and crayons. So it just became like a way to like, basically make me a good child, because I would not sit still otherwise. Um, so I was drawing from a very early age, in terms of just pure art making. And I think art has kind of always been in my family, um, on my dad's side, at least like my, my sisters an artist and my grandparents were art school teachers, like they used to teach at the community center and teach what? art. So <laughs> yeah, so it's like, not like professional artists, but they were like, you know, not so like, big name or anything but it would just always has been like part of you know my life is art in some ways on my dad's side especially um yeah like so everyone yeah, it, had an it,
0: interest
1: for sure <laughs> in art yeah exactly so it wasn't although my dad was more in the science brain so it skipped a generation I guess <laughs> um yeah so like I had always been drawing and animation was sort of like my first introduction to art making in it and as well, because as a kid, you're, you know, sitting with Disney movies constantly. And that's Mm -hmm. what I did. Like my parents would put me in front of Disney movies, and I'd watch Nickelodeon and like kids cartoons. So I just immediately was like, I love this, I want to do this. And I would just draw all the time. And I would study like, pictures. And um, like, I had like a how to draw the Disney style for like five year olds. And I was just like, so excited and enamored by those books and stuff. So I had always been doing it. And the funny thing is, as I got older, the industry changed. So there was a moment where actually I hesitated because it was kind of the era of when we were told two D's dead, three D's mm-hmm. the new thing. And I am not the three D-brained person. Like I was not like I would try to do three D modeling and stuff, And I was just like I hate this. So when I was in high school, I was like, What am I going to do? I thought about doing animation my whole life and I was like I still kind of want to go to art school maybe I want to be a writer instead Um, Mm because I still love telling stories and so forth and my parents were like you are not going to school for writing we do not want you broke oh my gosh (laughs) so I didn't go to art school but I still had that little inkling passion from my childhood of like this is what I wanted to do and then as I was in school it was adventure time and then steven universe came out and i think cora mm-hmm. at the time so it's like all of a sudden all these shows that were like still doing td 2d in an exciting way i was like oh tv animation is exciting again so i was like i want to be part of this and i kind of was like sitting so i instead got like a tech degree <laughs> mm-hmm. um my, my dad, as I said, is more science brain. And they were like, you're going to do en- computer engineering. That's clearly where all the jobs are. Oh. You have good math grades. So you're going <laughs> to do sci- uh, math. And I was like, when I would do like little programming things, I would still add animation to all them always. So I like still oh, wow. wouldn't leave behind what I loved. So I would still do like these little interactive stories and games. And then I was like, I really want to do this. But all the jobs in tech were like, Make apps, and I was like, I hate this, it's not my world, I don't care. It feels I used to call it a useless job, which I'm so sorry to the people that do it, that's maybe a little <laughs> offensive, but I definitely for me it was not fulfilling. So, mm-hmm. um, it, I'm sure for the people that do it that have a passion for it, it is fulfilling and it doesn't feel useless, but for me, I was just like, I, I'm it's not storytelling, it's not what I want to do, so after working in tech, I was like kind of doing like PA work, but like sort of, you know, early tech work, I was taking on freelance art jobs at the same time. Like I was trying to do illustration jobs and trying to find what I knew was storyboarding at the time, because I didn't know about storyboarding as well as a career, really. I would do it for advertising a bit and basically made enough money to move out to LA and kind of take a risk. Um, And I took a few classes out here at CDA and kind of footed the bill myself, which my parents were very upset about. Like, they didn't want me moving away either. So it was, like, a big deal. Yeah.
0: And how I far went. did you move away from?
1: So I grew up in New Jersey. Um, oh, okay. So, you know, it's still in the States, which makes it easier than, you know, any of our fellow expats. You know, at least I had citizenship. But, yeah, I moved from New York, New Jersey area to here, and my parents were not happy. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> And yeah, so that's why I was like, I kind of footed the bill myself and it was like a little like testing the waters and I was like, okay, I have to prove to them that I can do this and I can do it on my own. Otherwise they'll tell me to move back home <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, move back in with them and kind of give up on these silly dreams that I had. Um, but eventually, you know, I took the classes, I made a portfolio and was able to get my first job out here and been working ever since for the most part, which has been crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and how many years have you been in the industry? I think it's been seven, almost eight now. It's been a Yay. while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, my God, maybe even close to 10. I think it was 2015 I moved out here. You so. know,
0: at a certain point, we just like, <laughs> we're <laughs> like, just like, oh, God, it's been what? so long. <laughs> it's been yeah. long years. Like, instead it's of been <laughs> long years. <laughs> Well, knowing that animation is our full time job, in what ways has animation helped you thrive and not thrive?
1: Those are that's a good question, oh, man. So I think the reality of pre getting the job and then post getting the job is a very different reality. Mm-hmm. I think in your head, when you think of an animation job, it sounds like you're gonna hang with your friends and draw all day and make cool stuff, which is true, kind of. way less true than you think it is when you're like you see like the Cartoon Network studios like online like you know the early YouTube videos And I was like I saw Rebecca Sugar playing ukulele and making boards on paper and I was like this is so cool and collaborative and then you get into more of a production type studio and you're kind of worked till you're exhausted and it's very you know bureaucratic and all of a sudden you're like Oh, this is not like sort of the kind of chill art vibe that I kind of imagined. It's a workplace, and it's a corporate workplace, mm-hmm. and I think that that has still been kind of a struggle for me. Um, I don't think I ever wanted to work in a corporate workspace. That's not who I am. Probably can tell. I <laughs> never was built for it. Until I always struggled with structure, um, and so I like I feel like creatively inhibited by structure. Mm -hmm. So it became like a push and pull between I love what I do and I hate the structure I'm doing it in. Um, So that is kind of the thriving and not thriving that I think I constantly in my career struggled with where it's like, I know how I am best creative, which is working weird hours and um, working in whatever space I feel comfortable and kind of letting the creativity flow at a pace that makes sense to me. And a production is you have a tight schedule Everything has to be in. It's not as collaborative as you would hope as well. I think I had imagined, you know, you had a story partner and I will say I started in adult animation and yeah, I'm like, I feel like from what I read, you know, the adult animation life as well. (laughs) Yes, I certainly do. (laughs) Um, And yeah, adult animation, the writers are kind of God and the story artists kind of are exacting their will, at least Mm -hmm. in my experience with adult, So I as someone who also wanted to write and storytell, felt very like, Oh, I'm kind of just a pencil for their ideas. And I didn't feel like I had a lot of say over story or executing ideas creatively. And on my first production, like there were issues, maybe narratively that we would have liked to have changed as artists. And you can't like, even if you approach your bosses where you're like, Hey, this scene makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this. They say tough shit and Mm -hmm. deal with it. And that's, you got to draw it. And that's your paycheck. And, Maybe not in such nasty words, but essentially you yeah. don't, you know, you don't have that creative control. And I think that that is still where I've been trying to find an outlet. And also I eventually, I think adult has changed a lot. When I first started adult was a lot more regimented. It's gotten a lot more creative and experimental. Like just recently that Netflix show looks pretty cool and like scavengers rain and mm-hmm. midnight gospel. And there's like a lot more to convert or all like much more to me creative and open than what adult used to be, yeah. Um, which was more of like the Simpson style, which, you know, the, the Bob's burger style, which is oh, yeah, very the... flat and simple and, you know, yeah. regimented.
0: Um, well, it's called primetime, the primetime style. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. The primetime style. And I was like, uh, not necessarily my, my bag. So I definitely pushed into spaces where I was like, I want to try to do things where I have more control over the camera or I have more collaborative creativity and also like I wanted to work with you know more diverse creators because <laughs> a lot of the creators mm-hmm. of the shows were you know white men and yes that just was all my bosses for a while and I was like I would like bosses of color or, or shows that you know have something to say that's different and unique and and queer and you know all these different things so I was really trying to find that space too which isn't always easy to find. You kind of have to hope you get luck into finding those spaces. (laughs) For sure. Um,
0: Like not to uh, turn it on me, but I feel that especially the last few projects I've been on, I've been so lucky to have like women and uh, POC creators where I'm just like, this is new. And they were so much more open to, If you were like, hey, this part of the script isn't working or I think that this part could be switched around, they were like, "Okay," like they were open to hearing about it. And if they really wanted to keep it in there, you know, like they would. But yeah, I've definitely had the other side that you talked about of um, is very like you you say, I don't like this. And they say, you have to do it. (laughs) Well, so with that was adult so how is it um different with children's or like have you done uh because I'm always like confused there's like <laughs> children's and then there's teens or what are the like
1: <laughs> yeah there's I think we're still figuring out YA and that's kind of funny because yeah the last few projects I have been on have been more YA so it's mm-hmm. like I haven't I've worked in a few kids. So I worked on a Titmouse project recently that was kids. And that actually was like an eight to 12 series. Um, and that has always it's, it's bumps and interest interesting things. It's also for Apple and Apple's got like a very weird exact process. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. They're a little bit more um, delicate about things than I think other networks are. They're very like, no blushing. <laughs> it was one of the weirdest S P notes that we got. What? Characters can't blush because it suggests something sexual. <gasps> Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "That's okay. I mean, these characters like each other. We were gonna show it in like a very like they're in middle school, but okay, that's that's fine." <laughs> My, um, I'm like flabbergasted. <laughs> As I said, it was some of the weirdest S and P notes I've gotten in a while. <laughs> which,
0: yeah. Um, who, yeah. yeah, it's like, who is moderating that? And they're just like, no, when I blush, it's only sexual. <laughs> like, they don't blush from embarrassment. They don't blush for any other reason. <laughs> like...
1: It was definitely one of the weirder ones where I was just like, okay, I never thought that that would be a problem, but here we are. I don't know. Yeah, It's it's one of those things where you just kind of have to take note and you go, I'll find a way to work around this and still make mm-hmm. it work and still communicating it <laughs> with what we got. But yeah, most nice. of the shows otherwise I've worked on have been more teen focused. So and and I guess that's like so I, I recently was working on the, the Avatar the Last Airbender movie, which I can't talk a lot in detail, but I feel like that one's more supposed to be mm-hmm. general audiences, like four quadrant, the infamous four quadranty thing. Um working in kids or action adventure is is different. I mean, there's like so it's so interesting. Um because I've worked in every different like genre almost at this point, I think, except for like preschool, I think I did freelance very briefly for preschool. Um, mm. Yes, I did. <laughs> I should remember these things. <laughs> there is like a different culture to each part of the industry. Um, yeah. And every kind of like, even the people there in the studio, like the people you work with, like it, it, certain genres attract different people. And I'm always trying to figure out like my space in the industry. Cause I like a lot of things too. So it's always like, who do I like mm-hmm. want to hang out with? And I, the truth is, I like to hang out with a bunch of different people, which I think was very high school me too, because I was always like the kid that was like, I want to be part of this group a little bit and this group a little, you know. So I, I think I never like settled, or I was just like, I just like getting a vibe from everyone. So that's why I'm like, adult hasn't been written off. It's just as as the genre is changing, actually I'm like, ooh, adult's exciting again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the boss. On um, Spider-Man, I was very lucky to have an EP who came from Cartoon Network. Um, mm-hmm. And the Cartoon Network vibe is very collaborative. Writers are a lot more communicative with their teams. It's a lot more, the story artists are also storytellers. And even on that Apple show too, because I had someone also from like the Disney TVA, who was our supervising director. There was a lot more communication and willingness to, for story artists to speak up and add their impact to the story and be collaborative in certain ways that maybe other shows I had been on were a little bit more restrictive. And I think that that's really a cool element. Like, um, on Spider-Man, I was a director, as well as the Apple show. And on both of those, like it it depends, but on Spider-Man in particular, our EP was like, Hey, if you got anything on the script that you like want to talk about or change or collaborate on, like, I'm here. Like the writers will even like, if you're like, Hey, the scene isn't working, but like, I don't have time to write it. Like a writer will like pitch you ideas. And like, that was crazy. Like the writers would work collaboratively with us to make things better.
0: Um, Mm. And
1: it also helps that we had writers on staff, which, you know, depending on the show, like um, I've worked on shows also where the writers are not there because they're freelancers. And so we, once the script's done, they're out of the room um yep. so having writers in the room that could I could meet with like before I'd launch an episode I would meet with the writer and be like so I read the script and like what did you mean by this like how can I capture it? like I was like so in board's like the set won't allow us to do this but I want to keep your ideas in there like how can I change it like even just on a technical level not even a narrative level yeah. um and those were always great conversations to have and I was really appreciative I mean I've feel like I've loved a lot more of my later jobs and career and for similar reasons I had a much more diverse amount of creators and EPs and stuff so I feel like in general that was a lot more of a collaborative environment like you know that helped a lot <laughs> yeah. creating like a spirit of you know teamwork and effort to to make things better and be, feel like anyone could be heard on the production and that is super valuable to have
0: that is super valuable yeah thank you for sharing <laughs> No problem. <laughs> One of the things I want to bring up is the fact that in my animation circle, you actually became quite popular with the animatic you made of the father-daughter dance. And um, just to inform anyone unfamiliar with animatics, it's time storyboards to give like a skeleton or a guide to the final animation process. And with technology being what it is, it's been a blessing, especially for if you're doing personal storyboards so you don't have to fully animate it. Um, But it can also be a curse, but I don't think we wanna go into that discussion right now. (laughs) Uh, Back to the father-daughter dance though, it was actually the first time I had heard of you and it was so beautifully done. I remember a bunch of friends shared it and rightfully so. You can find it on YouTube or their Instagram, which you'll find in the uh, show notes. And can you tell me about your inspiration for it and how long it took you to make it?
1: Oh man. I first of all, oh my God. That's I'm so honored. That's that's crazy. I I that's you know, you put something online and you don't realize that it's touched people sometimes and it's just kind of overwhelming to hear. So I, I really appreciate that. I'm just gonna, sorry, I'm I'm not answering the question at all. I'm just I'm like that's, that's so cool. And, and I'm so glad that it, it made the rounds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I So I've been working on a story since middle school is uh, a long-winded way of saying. I've been kind of, like, developing this kind of heavy world-building story since middle school. It's changed. It's grown a lot since um, I first started it. But I would draw the characters in, like, my notebooks and write down notes. And um, I would always kind of come back to it. And at some point I kind of knew while working in the industry and kind of what we were just talking about, where I was like, I don't feel like I'm creatively fulfilled at work. I need an outlet. I need to tell the stories that I want to tell. And I was like, I could start going back to this as a graphic novel, which is originally what I intended to do back in mm-hmm. middle high school. And I was like, or I can just kind of do one of my, the climaxes that's really important to me that where the story is kind of going that I know what this is supposed to look like. And so I wanted to do that and I kind of did it as a word sample. So it's been kind of an idea that's been sitting on my head for so many years. I knew this was like kind of a focal point for one of the characters. Um, the character It's also kind of a personal story um, and it's a relationship without going into detail, but like the character goes through a different relationship with their father than I would say I would, but I've always kind of had a tenuous relationship with my own father and that mm-hmm. kind of push and pull has always been, Kind of tough especially as you get older kind of seeing things a little bit more with more clarity yeah um so on a personal level that is also sort of um something i wanted to kind of explore and that's kind of the backing emotion was it it was a very personal kind of foundation even if um for the character versus myself it's um a little bit more of a revelation for her that as she grew up, she kind of grew up in very protected in a world and an ideology. And then she got older and discovered that um, not only was she raised um, kind of culpable to the actions of her family and the government that she worked for, um, but that it was all a facade and a lie. And having to confront Oof. that and realizing that her father, uh, being one of the head generals of the of the, the military force um, is going to back the government over um, changing um, his view and she mm-hmm. has to confront that. So that's a very top heavy <laughs> reveal, but it's, it's a big part of the story there. Um, and so that was always kind of sitting with me and I was like, okay, it's a huge spoiler, but it, it's meant a lot to me to tell that story and to kind of get it out there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: Funny enough, I did it for a class and I did it in about two weeks, I guess. Oh my gosh. It was very fast. There were (laughs) definitely drawings I would redo. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So I know a lot of people probably thought it took longer, but I kind of rushed it while also working full time. And yeah, that was in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) weeks On
0: top of um, full time work, that's amazing. And if when people watch it, I think they're going to understand my astonishment because uh, it's
1: very, it looks looks very nice. It's very detailed. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I guess when I am, and I'm not, I don't think I calculated the hours I spent on it certainly, but I, you know, I was very passionate about telling it and certainly wanted to kind of push it out there, but it was, it was rushed for me. And sometimes, you know, it's funny, Sometimes the rushed work is the best you do in this industry. <laughs> so mm-hmm. who knows? Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that I've actually wanted to go back and maybe like clean it up or, or fix some of the the technicals of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the heart has communicated clearly to people. And that was kind of the, the goal, I guess. So I, as I said, I never expected the response it got. So I'm still overwhelmed that it, it kind of traveled the internet and and found its way to story circles. Yeah, that's why uh,
0: people should definitely upload their own stuff because <laughs> you never know. Things like this happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Um What other kind of reception did you receive and did it lead to any jobs or interests in anything else? Like I think of an image of a dancer or singer who catches the attention of an executive or someone of equal importance. And they're like, that kid's a star. (laughs) Did that
1: moment happen with you with this or? Uh, Yeah, actually it did. So it led to my first feature job. Um, I worked on feature of a couple in 2022. No, 21 and 22 yes so mm-hmm. in 2021 into 22 I worked in on my first feature um, and it was because production had seen that and wanted to give me a job so that was really cool and I, I had been wanting to get into feature and it but it like I was like I don't have a feature portfolio I can't apply and then mm-hmm. yeah it, it led to my first feature offer and of course I jumped at that I actually left a directing job because I was so excited to go into feature oh my gosh <laughs> So yeah, I I um that was a really cool opportunity. And then on, another opportunity I got was that's how I got my graphic novel agent, funny enough, because she said, What's the story behind this? I want you to tell it in a graphic novel. Oh my gosh. Um, Ooh, okay, wait. I want to put a pin in that
0: for a bit. But yeah, oh, that's so cool that uh it led to your first feature job. Have you and then has um have you been in feature ever since, or?
1: Um, so I was in feature for a while, and then I actually left. Um, I, I left for Spider-Man. It was one of the few shows I was willing to leave feature for, and it was because the EP is someone that I really wanted to work with. Um, so it wasn't even, like, the IP. I mean, I am I enjoy Spider-Man, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And obviously Spider-Verse is amazing and awesome. Um, but I was like, I'm not, like, the... Biggest. I'm not like compared to some people I know. The biggest Spider-Man. I love. I enjoy Spider-Man. I've read the comics, but it was really the EP Jeff trammell I'll give him a shout out that I adore. And I was like, "Damn, I want to work with you." And this is going to be your show. uh I'm 100 percent on, and it was the best decision I ever made. It was the best job I'd ever been on. Ugh. It. It really. This was a confirmation that man, people really make a job, because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there were other positives to it for sure that, you know, Marvel was super supportive of us. Um, We had good schedules, we had good budget, which always helps on making a production feel better. And it was during the time where, you know, that was the time of productions getting all that attention. (laughs) Very different era we're in right now. But Mm. uh, it was, you know, very enthusiastic. There was a lot of backing, there was creative freedom on it. We had a really good crew. And it was, you know, I hate to use it because it's like toxic to call a crew a family. But it was like we were this, we were this very close knit crew, I'll say that, um, where I think everyone really loved working on it, wanted to work hard on it. And you could feel the spirit was so positive at work, even when, you know, episodes would be hard, like it's a hard show. It was not an easy show to work on in terms of pushing the limits and skill. Like it was a very cinematic show, lots of fights, big set pieces, um, but everyone was just so enthusiastic to work on it. And um, I think it really ended up being a very special production. And so I don't regret leaving for it and it really made me, in my career, and I think a lot of people with experience say this, um, but sometimes you have to find out for yourself, which is, it's the people at the end of the day that's gonna make a good production, not the the fancy IP or whatever. like. From the exterior, people will hear, oh, you worked on XYZ. That's so impressive. But at the end of the day, you might pick an unknown name because it's worth it to work with the people that you have there. And that has maintained you know, importance for me now more than anything else where I'm like, I want that guarantee that I'm working with good people and a good environment over anything else now.
0: Yeah, definitely. I feel the exact same way. There are Um, creators that I really love working with or I know that they won't be flip-flopping or um, if you have a producer or like people who have your back that's so important and I agree I've been in a couple crews where we still talk it has that like kind of family aspect or just that closeness that you still hang out with them and you still keep in contact. And I would love to work with any of them. Like, if if any of them were like, come back to this project, I'd be like, done, hands down. Like, let's go. (laughs) Let's do this. And I feel uh, the longer we're in this, the more that we're like, I loved working with you and let's get the crew back together. Like, we set up our own kind of Avengers, I guess.
1: Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) That's exactly what it feels like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So back to father daughter dance, does this segment and especially what you said with your um, literary agent, does this segment reflect what is going to be in your graphic novel at all? Or is this for a completely different project?
1: So this is for a completely different project Um, with my agent. I mean, it attracted her certainly to, to contact me to be like, what stories have you got to tell? But after looking at the story, we felt that this was a multi-book series. It was more mm-hmm. adult. And and she felt that for um, a first graphic novel, we'd have an easier time selling middle grade. Um, so I ended up being like, so she was like, what other stories you got? And I sent her like a document with a bunch of like log lines of other stories that I had. Because um, I have plenty of them. Because I'm always coming up with a new idea every week. <laughs> and um, I uh sent it to her and then there was an idea i'd actually had been working on since college so this was another long-term idea that she was like this is perfect for publishers because she you know is looking at the breadth of the market what they're buying adult is hard to sell in the market for graphic novels it Mm -hmm. doesn't make as much money Mm -hmm. it's just a reality it's just a harder especially like a heavy world building one And I kind of knew also artistically, Mm -hmm. it's a higher caliber art style of like what I wanted to look like and so forth. So it it was one that I knew, put it on the back burner for right now. Um, And the graphic novel I'm working on right now is sort of like a one shot book story that's for, you know, audiences eight to 12. It's, it's more kind of Sim- it's simple. It's more simple. It's it's more about the dynamics of friendship than it is about, like, hmm. heavy geopolitical <laughs> commentary, um, which is a little bit more of what the other story is. And it still has, like, its personal character moments, but that's my, like, fantasy sci-fi world where this one's like, takes place in New York. <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, <laughs> or an alternative New York. Because <laughs> it's where I grew up. Yeah. Mm,
0: yeah, I feel like Especially when it's fantasy, you just have so much more world building to do. Um, and I know I keep going back to that segment, but do you have the whole world figured out or are you still trying to world build on it?
1: Um. So there's a lot of elements that I have figured out. There are certain things that, you know, I have basically so when submitting it to my agent, I wrote out basically what would happen in the entire, I would say first book, but I would say that's like the first arc, it probably wouldn't even fit confessionally in like a book, Um, maybe like a written novel book, but like a graphic novel, it would be hard to condense it all. Um, And then I have the other ones more outlined, Mm -hmm. and I know where it goes and where it ends. um, But it's it's pretty comprehensive and I have spent years like world building it. And it, it is something that I feel like it's constantly evolving also with like, as I age and become more sophisticated in my understanding of the world, like I want it to reflect a more complex and nuanced world as well. Like when I first started in middle school, like uh, funny enough, and I'm not taking any credit, but the first, first way I built it was like in the world, there's the one area that's like technology based and then the other areas are all based on the different, the four different elements. And I was like, <laughs> as I got older, I was like, that's too dumb and mundane. And then Avatar came out and I was like, okay, maybe I was selling my young self a little short, but I don't think I was building it to the sophistication level. You know, I and pry or but it was like, definitely like an element of like, there will be like the fire area and then the water. And I think, you know, I played a lot of video games that just was, you know, you play Zelda and that's basically what it is. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't really, you know, ripping off anything or certainly it makes sense that many people would build worlds similarly. But now I've um, evolved it where a lot of it is a lot more nuanced and and deeper and, and kind of, again, reflects my own kind of relationship with the world and the complexities of the world. It's not simple. <laughs> um, and yeah. I think has a lot more to do with like technology and my relationship with how I feel where technology is going, kind of like a top level mm. um, understanding of it. So it's, it's definitely become less for young people and it's definitely more of like um, adulter, but it has young characters. So a lot of the ca- yeah. the characters are teens and twenties, but the world is much more adult.
0: Yeah, uh, it makes me think of Nausicaa, the mm. Miyazaki movie, because that was also like, it's so interesting how a lot of his movies or stories do have all these political statements, but they're kind of overshadowed with this beauty that he brings and like the fantasticalness. But he like just made, because Nausicaa, he made the movie, but he also made um, the graphic novel, and into like four huge volumes, which is so crazy. I think that was the first time that I was like, whoa, a story can actually change. Like seeing a story being like one concept in a movie and then like kind of going totally different because he had the time to like spread out the story. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting. Um, I guess like we don't really do that nowadays or can you think of an example? I mean,
1: I feel like the obvious one is like Game of Thrones but um, that's kind of the inverse. It's, you know, it's expanded in a book and then it's condensed for a movie, a TV series. Um, I don't know. I I mean, I I think like there are adaptions of things like I'm less well-versed in it, but I have friends that like love, you know, the Star Wars universes and they... There's a lot of books that are based on Star Wars that they love, and that, that add a mm-hmm. lot of more depth into the world, and and nuance, and intrigue. And I know that's what the series are trying to do is trying to bring more of that kind of world into the show. Um, but I yeah. think that's why they sometimes lose people. It's it's an interesting and tricky balance to build worlds that that deep and expansive. Um, definitely, like I think like. D&D is the way that a lot of people in our generation explore world building now. Mm-hmm. Like, they just kind of mm-hmm. build within the environment of D&D. There's less of, like, original worlds. I mean, I'm, I'm heavily inspired also by um, from soft games, actually. Like, um, I think they're some of the best um, world building. And it's about how the... And I think Miyazaki's really talented at this, too, is they know how to tell you about the world without telling you much information. And I think that mm-hmm. builds a better world because it's more... You know, you're not getting, like and this is the culture of this area, or this is the, you know, you just kind of explore it and you learn through osmosis where you, you know, you're like, what's, what the hell's going on here? And then you just kind of like see these weird creatures and they're crawling up in the ground and they're grotesque. Um, I think Miyazaki, they're both named Miyazaki, actually very funny. (laughs) So the director for From From Soft is also named Miyazaki. And I remember they asked him about character concepts and what his philosophy, like, why are the designs for that game so beautiful, even though they're so dark? And he was like, there's always, like, beauty in the darkness. And that's, like, what makes it more grotesque. And I was like, that is so profound. And, like, he doesn't try to make ugly things. He tries to make, like, sad things. And I think that that's more, or there's, like, this sense of dread. And I love that his world's managed that versus, like, you know. And I think Miyazaki's, even though they're more of the beauty side, there's still, like, a somberness to everything he creates. Oh, there's yeah. still, like, this, like deep darkness um to the beauty that he creates and I think that that also I think like finding that somberness in beauty is something that also I like really am attracted to and when I try to do my own work I love finding that little like pocket of like memories and and intangible kind of like somber emotion like I the more and I think that for the father-daughter piece too it's like The more I can do without dialogue, the better. (laughs) I love like Mm -hmm. exploring worlds um, where the worlds kind of tell you about themselves.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was just going (laughs) to mention that I think it's really, I think that's something in Western media that uh, we like working in television, you try to put a, a, a moment, like a pause to be like, look at this visual to explain the story. And you always get the note. I don't get it. Like, where is the dialogue? Where is the explanation? And it's like, you just see it now in media, where sometimes you're like, if you're not in the industry, sometimes you'll be like, why are they over explaining? (laughs) You just know it's like, because someone said, No, I don't get it. I don't get it. And instead of like, just taking it in and like taking a second to enjoy it. And um, I think it's, Nice that um, uh, how would I say this? It's like when we work on personal personal projects like your father daughter dance where it doesn't have a lot of dialogue, it probably is so impactful because of that because it's something different that we're feeding to the audience rather than you saying, You know what, I'm gonna go a typical route because this would be this would sell better or this would you know x y z and like, I think it really went to your benefit. And I wish we had more stuff like that. <laughs> it's like basically what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that's kind of same here. And actually, like, I'm kind of in an interesting phase right now because I, I have been feeling more and more like i trying to believe in myself more as a creator and, and realizing maybe what the studio system wants isn't going to be ever something I can create. And what I want to create might have more like, I, I miss making animatics like that and having the time for that. So it's been something I've been reflecting a lot on. Because, yeah, I, I think I continually get frustrated that we aren't given those moments. But again, like, things are changing. Like, Scavenger's Reign is very much a quiet somber. I mean, it's I think it's heavily influenced by French animation, mm, which mm-hmm. tends to be more quiet and silent. And I think as we allow more international sensibilities to animation it will grow and become better if we allow it instead of, you know, it's just, we are fighting against a system that has been in place that is, you know, been established and has like a set of rules and dynamics. And it's so hard to find that, but I I do have some hope that maybe um, there are more corners of the internet and the world and of animation that can build out new ideas and new foundations of what it can look like for that exact reason. And, and, Yeah, I mean, I've I've tried to fight for it too. That was like, I remember, um, I won't say the show, even though probably people (laughs) can figure it out. I was working on a show and I had boarded a scene um, that was very emotional and quite silent. And my supervising director loved it. He was very excited. And then they went to the screening um, with the writers and the executives and so forth. And he came back so sad and I said, what's going on? He said, we have to change your scene. And I said, why? And he was like, well, the writers don't think it's funny and we need to plant it with jokes. And he showed me the scene and we both like had a memorial for its passing. He, he was so upset. And I, I like at least felt better that at least he cared about my scene being the way it was. Like, um, but we both, we had like this mourning process. We were both, he was like, listen, I loved it. That's not what they want and we can't do anything Mm -hmm. about it. And then the final scene is chock full of punch up jokes. And it just it takes out any of the emotional grace, I would say, of the scene and how it was originally, you know, shot and then how he edited it and how he put it together as a supervisor. And it was a hard thing to see. And I think people would have appreciated the scene more if we were allowed to have it sit with the audience, um, my personal yeah. take, I don't think, I don't think they would have missed the jokes if they could have felt something, um, mm-hmm. and I think the jokes underscored it or undercut it. So yeah, like I've definitely had that professionally. <laughs> yeah, uh, same. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry.
0: You know, that's just, uh, that's just the truth of our industry, um, because I think a lot of people who aren't in animation. And even like when we go into the industry, we think that we have a lot more power than we do and, or or have not even power, but we have a lot more influence than we do. And we think that, Hey, we're the ones that know how to visually tell a story. Why don't you trust us? And then, but because we're doing someone else's vision, it ultimately is like what they think is best for the story. And there comes a point where you have to either accept that or you have to like i think a lot of people get out because they can't handle being like well but my ideas like what about my input and it's like no you're trying to like you're you're not trying to put your input you're trying to put what you think they will want and like what they are going to respond to and i think that's a huge um not misconception or like that's a huge realization that people in the industry have to come to.
1: <laughs> Which absolutely, uh... yeah, it's you know that's that's why we get paid though. You know, like it's that's mm-hmm. what I try to remind myself is like, and maybe that's like too transactional, but I try to remind myself like, if I have an opinion, well, I get paid to shut up. I d- I do. I get paid to shut mm-hmm. up and do what they say and do what they want. It's not always, and not every job is like that. But if you yeah. have a job that is like that, that's kind of at least how I find peace. I go, well, I can pay my rent. <laughs> it's not like exactly. a happy, but you know, I try. I think that's why I take on so many personal projects, and actually, why I did the graphic novel and jumped on the chance because it was like I needed that outlet to tell a story of my own, so I could do the job and just do what was asked of me. And I couldn't yeah. take it personally because if I had that outlet, then I was finally able to be like, oh, okay. You know, and I think it's important for people, even if you're just picking it away at it, but if you have a personal project that you just can kind of turn to and go, this is mine. No one can touch it. I can be as selfish as I want in this creative space. Um, it can help you compartmentalize because I agree with you. There are some people that like get in fights about wanting their stuff or arguing. And I think that then it becomes, you know, uh, an unproductive work environment. And unfortunately, you know, we are employees. It's that's mm-hmm. the the trade is you are even the creators, you know, so many EPs go through the process. And I've talked to friends who've gone through, you know, the development process as well as like the show running process and how much that's a compromise that people don't even realize. Like so often people don't realize how much the show isn't, isn't even what the head of the show always wants. And Mm -hmm. often it can be warped and changed and almost unrecognizable to them because the studio wants changes. There are instances where showrunners are very lucky, but there's a lot of truth that, you know, that's what the executives, the studios, like they have their own things they're trying to hit that you are just kind of also facilitating your idea through. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially Mm -hmm. if you're working on an IP, like, you know, a big movie product or something like I don't know, like Barbie, like Greta Gerwig probably had a million people in her ear telling her what she couldn't, she couldn't do, even to make that movie. Um, yeah, even if it's like her touch.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so funny how people were bringing up like, oh, that one scene with the uh, the bench scene, and they were like, the studio fought her to cut it, and but then like us being in the industry and seeing this kind of movie come out, we're like what like she must have gone through so many battles to even keep like like maybe that was the last one that they tried to cut out and that's how what people heard of but she probably like fought through
1: so much (laughs) yeah i i would be shocked i mean i think that there are periods in which studios and executives have been more flexible and then there are periods where they're very scared and they control everything. I think mm-hmm. people will notice that too, is the most creative freedom we get in animation is A, when they don't care about your show, which means your show is cheap. And sometimes <laughs> that uh, that can be a blessing, um, mm-hmm. which is weird, even though you also get neglected and you don't get the support you need. Or the studios, I think like during the Netflix period, that was the most creative freedom showrunners got for a while because they the oh executives gosh. were like, be free, run free. We have so much money and we're throwing so much at you. And it was mm-hmm. I've heard that at that time it was a uniquely creative period for creators. And then afterwards we're in the tight- tightening and now it's like overload of notes. At least that's what I've heard from everyone I know who's working right now. <laughs> the few people yeah. that are working is that it is notes pylons like it is insane amount of notes it's almost like compensating for that kind of period of freedom where now executives are like you have no freedom it is tons of notes because they're scared and they don't think they need to make sure every project makes money right now
0: yeah for sure (laughs) (sighs) but then that's why we have to turn to graphic novels and these personal ips because yeah, how else are we going to get our stories told if we're not being trusted? So, what else can you tell us about your graphic novel? Or, um, so you're getting it published through a publisher, mm-hmm. which is so great. Do you have a deadline where you have to complete it by, or?
1: Yes, um, there are deadlines, though I will say, um, and those are negotiated when you first sign your contract, though you can ask for extensions when it is your own personal book. When you're the illustrator on a book, it's much harder. So that's like just an FYI for audience. But yeah, like uh, because it's your own book, like they kind of do installment pay and at each kind of checkpoint you get paid for handing in a certain bulk of work. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, there, there are certain deadlines and there are certain expectations when they want to release it um and then you kind of fulfilling those um checkpoints so yeah it's it's interesting though because there's a lot less check-in than like say an animation production like you can go months without hearing from your editor easily Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and that was a a very kind of something hard to get used to because like even took six months for me to get any notes maybe longer oh wow a year to get notes on my book and I was just like I'm supposed to be working on this and I don't know what I'm supposed to change. And it's freaking me out. And yeah, like I've been told like sometimes you should just go ahead and work on it. But I felt really scared to like do it in case there were major changes. Um, so that was like kind of tough where I was like, okay, I need, you know, some movement in the schedule so you can kind of negotiate those things. And luckily I have an agent It said that found me first. So she helps me negotiate those things and she's awesome. Okay. But in general, the publisher and editor have been really lovely. Like, I, I've honestly had a very positive experience with publishing. The, the downside of publishing is that you don't get paid frequently. And the first payment was supposed to come at signing. And the signing is when everyone agrees to the contract. So you mm-hmm. think I did the auction. I, I picked which publisher I was going with, which editor I was going with. And then you sign probably. What would you expect? Maybe like a month or two at most? Yeah took over a year oh my god so I didn't get my first payment until over a year and I was like I don't know how people who this is their only job are able to do this because I wouldn't have gotten paid for a year and if I was counting on that paycheck I I, mean I would have been you know destitute I I I wouldn't have a home so it's why I really negotiated a balance between full-time work and publishing work because I need health insurance and I need some stability to be able to know that I can pay my rent because I I need mm-hmm. to be able to pay my rent. <laughs> it's uh, you know important. So I I um, have definitely negotiated that as part of my contract as well to make sure that I can work full time while also working on the graphic novel and have enough time mm. to do both. Which means I get paid slower, but I rather that, and then at yeah. least I have another paycheck that's consistent mm-hmm. than um, you know taking right a now. chance at just. Running out and then you know being completely effed. (laughs) So yeah, definitely. um, So when you
0: say you submitted it and waiting for notes, what part of the process is that? Is that like script process or is that you drew out thumbnails of how the format was going to be or how does that work?
1: That's a great question. So I first submitted um, a proposal, which is how you get picked up by a publisher, and the proposal has a summary of your, a general summary of the story and then page samples. So I think it's about um, at least three to five finished pages, if I remember correctly, and then Mm -hmm. 10 to 20 um, thumbnailed pages on top of it. So like you show like, this is where, and this is the style of the book, what it's going to look like, and this is what you're going to get. And then you do a full book summary and you submit that as your proposal. You're, so you're like, I detail out every step of the, the book. You basically outline it, how you would a script um, of the book itself. And you submit that to your agent. They give you notes. And then you submit it to publishers. Um, so that was the first process. And that took a little, I think that took a pretty brief amount of time. Actually, I was fortunate. But it probably like around three months total process for that for me. Um, yeah. And then you wait for the signing and you, they, and they say, and then um, you're given kind of a short time to do. Um, then you do like a script and then you do kind of thumbnailing process afterwards, but I kind of combined them. And I said, listen, how I work is I like to thumbnail out and see how many pages I need to tell a bit of a story. So I did like a kind of special panel layout where I laid out bits of script and then the panels. And then I Re, um, organized it based on how many panels I, I needed per page. So I was like, okay, like I'm doing like a fight sequence and I'm like, well, I don't know how that's gonna, how many pages I need, like writing wise, um, until I panel it out. So some things that especially are more actiony or more uh, motive, I would make sure to figure out the panels and then like for dialogue, I would write it on the side. Um, and so that's how I figured out my page count essentially. Um, oh, wow. And so I submitted that packet um, for notes. And then at least in the schedule, it was like giving them six months to send feedback on that. And as I said, it took six months on top of that for them. So it was like six months for them to get back to me. (laughs) Still didn't get the notes at the end of six months. And that was for any revisions on that. And then it was still another six months before I actually got, um, the notes themselves. And then I was given, or I'm given a year and some change to do, um, all the line art. So now cleaning it up with the notes incorporated, doing all the finished line art for the book. And then you do another cycle, which is color. And then the final cycle is like talking with the editor and the publisher about like, you know, covers and other details. And so there's still a lot to go. I mean, I'm partway through my lines right now. That's kind of where I'm at. And then (laughs) Then I'll do color. Color is a lot shorter um, on the schedule, but my colors are pretty simple for this comic. So hopefully it won't take me too long. And then I'll, I'm hoping to get some help on color as well. And then, yeah, then it'll be like the press tour and stuff. But yeah, like that's why the book's not coming till like 2025 because it's like, there's still a lot to go. <laughs> so oh it'll God. be a while. But that's still um, so cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it. I'm excited. It's also a big book. I should say it's over 300 pages. So it's it's a big guy. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And this will be your first four way into graphic novels, right? Yeah, this will be my first graphic novel. So yeah, no, it's it's super exciting, and like I'm excited to do more books for sure. I, I it's a big commitment, though. I will say, and you know, it's not for the faint of heart. It, you were drawing a lot you're drawing a lot you're drawing a lot and it's a lot more finished <laughs> art than maybe a story artist is used to which is something I had been get used to I was like can I just leave it in the thumbnail stage I like the drawing and I was like no I gotta clean yeah. it up <laughs> to make it look <laughs> you know uh publishing ready so uh but yeah um you also asked about a little bit about why I could tell you about the book so I'm happy yes. to give kind of like a a log line for the book um so the, the story of the book is actually, it's about two friends who've been demon hunters since they, were, since they were basically old enough to start fighting demons. And now that they've hit middle school, they're both realizing that they kind of want different things. And so we're kind of following the story of two best friends that are going to go through maybe their first friendship breakup. And it's about how two friends are suppressing their emotions while fighting demons (laughs) and that's kind of the the gist of the story and yeah it's like kind of about like that hitting that puberty or age where it's like one friend is like hey uh I don't think I want to do this anymore we've been doing it our whole lives and like maybe I want to try new stuff and make new friends and the other friend's like doubling down like this is all I want to do and it's about that kind of um wanting different things
0: yeah Ooh, I like that I feel like we all go through that with puberty. And it's such a huge lesson to learn. And it's like also something that is going to span into not only 8 through 12, but I feel like everybody can relate to that. Even in adulthood, you're still figuring out like, are we still on the same path with like friend, relationship, like anyone? And then you have to figure out like how to separate from that or how to get back together. So that's I guess right. that's, that's what we're going to figure out. Are they going to... <laughs> Are they going to separate or get back together? We'll find out in twenty twenty five. I've noticed your work spans a wide variety, full of fantasy, sci fi, and some slice of life. What inspirations do you derive your work from?
1: Oh, oh my god, that's such a good question. I mean, I would say a lot of things. It's, it's, and that's also, I guess, the the friendship circle thing is like I like to work on all these different things. Um, hmm. I mean, I think a lot of my basis would probably be in, um, I grew up loving anime, of course. And I think there's a lot of foundation in anime. Um, uh, a lot of video games as well. And um, I think I was a very big fan of like classic JRPGs. Um, and I think they, they also span, like, I loved everything from like Persona, which is more slice of life with, you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah, darkness (laughs) and demons and stuff. And then, you know, I also love like classic final fantasy and breath of fire. And, um, the Suikoden series is like my favorite. That's, I know like five people in animation that love it. And they're the only people I've ever met in my life that like it, which I'm very fortunate that they all happen to be in our field, but it's such an unknown title. Um, And, uh, of course, like Zelda, huge inspiration. Miyazaki, huge inspiration. Um, I love a lot of like the Fallout series and Borderlands too. I like the aesthetics when I go into sci-fi. I like a lot of that kind of foundation. I, oh, I also love like horror. And I mean, I used to grow up on so many cartoons too. So it's like almost hard. Like my influences start to come from like everywhere. I just kind of used to call myself like (sighs) like a media sponge, because I would just like watch so much TV and play so many games. And I just like loved consuming different stories just to get a sense I would read so many books and listen to music and so forth. Um, So yeah, like I, my influences are kind of all over the place. And I like kind of piecing them together with also personal stories, um, and kind of coming up with Mm -hmm. something new. Like, a lot of my characters, I would say are loosely based on people I know. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) They're loosely based on, like, of course, like, people I know or relationships I've had and and kind of recontextualizing it in these worlds. And also, again, like, personal journeys and so forth, um, while also taking huge, like, just odes and influences to stories and that I've loved and have, you know, touched me and wanting to touch people similarly. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. Is there anything recently or in the past couple of years that you would say has been inspiring in your life lately that has got you feeling passionate and
1: invigorated? Ooh, that's that's a really good question. Oh, I would say I've had a tough few years. I mean, I think we all mm. have. It's been, you know, the pandemic has, has certainly been crazy and then the fallout from that has been crazy. And certainly the climate in the United States has been crazy, as well as the world, um, to put it mildly. And it's definitely, you know, I think all of those things swirl in my head. And I I try, I was actually thinking a lot to myself where I'm like, how much as an artist do I put my thoughts and feelings out there? I think every artist kind of goes through this. Mm -hmm. And some of us are more, you know, some artists I know are like more like, I just put my art out there and I don't say anything else. I'm not an identity outside my art. I used to be much more of an identity outside my art and then working in the studio system it makes it a little bit more complicated for me to be like as outspoken um and uh it's hard and I try to think I, I what I'm trying to do is I try to funnel more of those thoughts and feelings and rage and whatever into the art I make um and trying to find that space in what I create and try to process it. So I think there is like definitely utilizing art as a space to almost journal um, mm. has, is generally pretty healthy for me. I think that's always been like a general inspiration, especially when I was very little I was processing mm-hmm. like a lot of personal trauma. Um, I would process it through art making um, and I would make like weird dark creepy weird art which is uh, you know a lot of what kids do yeah. um especially when they're like I don't understand the world and I would just make these weird graphic weird art um and I mean mine was like riddled with like anime characters but like in creepy ways <laughs> so it was you know anime tears but it's just like processing all these things and yeah so I think that that's still like a place for me and I think um certain stories it's it's kind of funny like as I approach stories that I've told or come up with when I was younger, getting to reapproach them with more adult eyes has been really helpful for me, understanding like where they came from. Mm. I guess you could say therapy has helped me understand my fiction a lot more. <laughs> um, going, oh, that's where that comes from. <laughs> that's <laughs> revealing. <laughs> that, that happens a lot too. And actually, like even in my graphic novel, there's a lot more Nuance in how I built the world based on uh, things I've learned through about psychology. (laughs) Wow, Um, which has been fun too.
0: Yeah, oof, so cool. In the vein of funsies, is there a random
1: animal fact that you can tell me? A random animal fact? Oh man. (laughs) Well, there is a frog that is too small that it can't control its jumps. It is the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. What? It is so. It's the dumbest frog. It's so funny. Um, I have to. I will look up the name of it. Frog, <laughs> too small brain. <laughs> okay, so it yeah, it's a a frog from Brazil. It is a miniature frog that apparently it's. <laughs> It's called a pumpkin toadlet. It's like the non-sciencey name. Brachysipholasus? But yeah, okay. So the inner ear canal of the frog is too small and it's filled with liquid, so it can't control its sense of balance or moving. So when it jumps, it just kind of jettisons its body stupidly into the air. (laughs) Sorry, I'm looking it up right now.
0: It's all good. What? What? That is... (laughs) Oh my gosh. Nature. Um, please.
1: <laughs> is there a workplace? Yeah. I'll send oh, it on Discord. Yes. Yeah. This <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for this frog. It is it's a poor little baby. It's just trying its best. I was reading something about like how also like when it tries to mate, it's also like really dumb, but I'm kind of forgetting the details. But just the please watch it. <laughs> jumps it can't jump and land properly <laughs>
0: um yeah I'm gonna watch to you. I'm gonna watch after after this I think but like I'm so excited this no worries
1: like, uh <laughs>
0: evolution really no, I was like I
1: actually have animal facts <laughs> <laughs> I love it that
0: was a good one um yeah I'm still kind of reeling about it. I'm like what um yeah I don't Sometimes I'm just like, why nature? Why? But then it's also crazy that not only did this evolutionary, like, did this happen, but it's still living. Like, they're still, like, alive, and there's still a species that's, like, living, even though they're, like, can't control themselves.
1: Yeah, I think, actually, there is, like, they are endangered because it, there is, like, a problem <laughs> with evolution for them. But, like... Yeah, they they are still kicking it. They're still surviving how they can. Um, (laughs) They're just funny little guys. Yeah, um, and I'll confessionally, so two facts about animal history for me, if you do not mind. um, My first job out of school is I was doing PA work for Scholastic, and we were working on a dinosaur game, and then an animal, specifically Um, insectopod game. So I had to be the researcher and I actually was writing the quizzes for the scholastic game about these animals. So I actually had to learn tons about dinosaurs. I became like a dinosaur expert for a temporary period of time in my career. (laughs) So I was trying to rack my brain for those, but I was like, I don't remember anymore. It's been too many years.
0: Oh man. That's so cool. Uh, And then you said you had a second kind of like, or is that just your second? Oh yes. Um, Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. No, this one's, but yeah, I, my side career is if I left animation and decided not to make art anymore as I would just like full-time take care of animals. I Aww. feel like, and like, um, that I feel like is like a place where I just like, I've always said like, I would love to volunteer at like, yeah. um, rehabilitation centers especially for like exotic animals or endangered species um Mm. i had an aunt that when she retired she worked at the zoo and she would bring me there as a little kid and she would show me like how they would take care of the animals and so i think it became like a secret this seems so cool unfortunately it's not really much of a job you have to volunteer a lot or it's like a very you know it's a hard life um, but it's definitely like something I love very much, and wish it was a more affordable career path. <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure, especially in LA. So, as part of the show, mm-hmm. I'd like to pull out a tarot card for the episode, if you don't mind. Because um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe a listener uh, needs to hear it today, or you. You know, we don't know me. <laughs> And I'm going to be using the universal fantasy tarot deck. And I'm just shuffling right now. And if you want to tell me when to stop, I'll like stop and pull the top of the card.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Stop. Okay. We've got, ooh, Judgment. Let me show mm-hmm. you the card. It looks pretty cool. And So it's like number 20.
1: Very cool. Yeah, it's really pretty.
0: Do you have a, like, feeling, or does this... How, how would you
1: explain the card? I mean, powerful yet ominous, I would say. <laughs> mm. Mm. Kind of, oh. like, um, I think just kind of, like, someone watching over you don't know their intention um, over society, and I think, like, in a an objective observer if you will but maybe not objective that's kind of the Mm. vibes i'm getting right now
0: Mm -hmm. well let me tell you what judgment says
1: so evaluating the path we have traveled
0: we can find the best way to face the future we have to think of what we are and not what we would like to be
1: hmm Mm. yeah very powerful
0: (laughs) yeah yeah for me i see like someone blowing a horn and all these people or all these flowers are waking up like it's um morning. Yeah, this one's like not coming to me as fast. Usually I feel like I have a pretty good interpretation. But for some reason, this is, um I don't know, I just see an awakening, I guess. And mm. yeah, I'm trying to remember what you were saying too. It's like, it feels a bit ominous. It feels like someone overlooking, but you don't know what intention they have. I guess that's with like any job or anything in life where we're going to run into so many people and like there's always a start that there's going to be good intentions, but we ultimately don't know. And if we try to change who we are, then probably won't get the best result. But um, if we think of what we want to be and focus on our creative projects like you are, which I think... Uh, it feels like it's coming together now because what we think people are going to like is not going to be the best outcome. Like we can think that like this graphic novel has to be 8 through 12 or how we talked about with um, if we tried to pitch a show we we have to make it like this. But I think the fact that you are making this graphic novel and putting the stories that you want and you're being true to who you want to be And um, it's really going to shine and give you the outcome that, like, people are going to really be able to see you. And uh, I think it's – and, oof, even, like, with the father-daughter dance, something that was so personal. And it, you know, like, you just were you and you weren't faking anything. And and I think that's the best way that you're facing the future. And I feel like listeners should also feel that way, that that's the best way that they should face the future, too. So – let's all be authentic to ourselves and to everyone else and continue forward. (laughs) Yay. I pulled it together in the end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was beautiful. Really. Oh, thank you.
0: Yes. Thank you, Liza, for being here with me (laughs) and talking.
1: And where can people find you
0: and follow your work and hear the latest updates?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I am pretty much laser singer everywhere. Laser with an S, not a Z. Uh, L-A-S-E-R-S-I-N-G-E-R. You can find me on uh, Twitter because I refuse to call it anything else. Blue Sky, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr. Um, I actually will be starting a Patreon soon um, with my publisher's permission where I will be able to do more comic updates um, oh, nice. and uh, uh, my cross post to a Kofi as well. So for people interested in following the comic while I'm working on it and learning about the comic process, I will be sharing process um, a bit more on there and that's my hope. So I'll be uh, launching that soon. So definitely keep an eye out on social media. I'll be announcing it everywhere. When I finally get it fully up and running, I just got to get a few checks and thumbs up from my publisher to make sure that they're cool with (laughs) everything and what I'm sharing. Um, Awesome. So, yeah, uh, I'll, Share that soon. But uh, definitely, as I said, it'll be at Lasersinger everywhere. That's just my my name everywhere. I'm easy to find. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. Awesome. And yes, thank yeah. you, Sam, so much for having me. Oh my gosh, of course. I'm
0: so honored that you're here with me and had to how to deal with because um, I'm probably gonna edit it all out, but how to deal with all my my cat, my <laughs> my internet troubles. <laughs> well, Sadly, we are at the end. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and you know, all the things. You can also follow Tired and Thriving on Instagram at Tired and Thriving, all one word. You can email if you want to reach out, give feedback, or let me know maybe how you've been uniquely thriving at Tiredandthriving at gmail.com. Thank you again, and I hope you all have a thriving week. See you next time.